Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yes, Jim, it is finally Friday. We can say it truthfully. After saying it untruthfully a few times this week, we have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. Uh, Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Let's get to our good martini, Wall Street Journal. It's not official yet, but it looks like we're heading in this direction. Negotiators for the U.S. and Mexico prepared for a third day of meetings Friday to build on the new momentum in their border security talks as the clock wound down ahead of President Trump's threatened sanctions on Mexican imports next week. The U.S. has called on Mexico to block more migrants at its southern border with Guatemala and to step up efforts against organized smuggling in order to slow the numbers of Central Americans crossing into the U.S. It has also pressed Mexico to designate itself a safe third country, which would mean people entering Mexico from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador would not be eligible to claim asylum in the U.S., Absent a deal, President Trump has threatened to impose escalating tariffs on Mexico. Among the options the Mexican delegation proposed were putting troops on their southern border, as well as proposed actions for additional drug interdiction, according to senior U.S. administration officials. But the U.S. insisted that Mexico needs to help enforce U.S. asylum rules and strictly implement the Remain in Mexico policy, which has migrants wait in Mexico while their asylum claims are adjudicated in the U.S., as well as the previously mentioned safe third country concept. And, Jim, uh, we don't know what's going to be official. All of these negotiations were done while Trump was out of the country, so we'll see if he likes what they've come up with. Obviously, Monday is the day that he said the tariffs would kick in, so they're trying to get something official before then. But uh, we, we said the tariffs would be terrible unless they got Mexico to change real quick, and it looks like they're interested in changing real quick. Yeah, Greg. I mean, look, we don't want to put the cart before the horse. This is a tentative good martini, uh, but it does sound like this threat has gotten the Mexican government to come back and say, "Okay, we have a couple ideas of how we can address this better. Here's our list of ideas, including more troops on the southern border and things like that. Look, if this works out, then this will be a considerable vindication for the president's approach to this um, and the idea that, you know, sometimes he takes stances that are very provocative and that almost – uh, you know, threatened to upset the apple cart, but in the end, uh, will you know spur the other side to make concessions and get a better policy than he otherwise would have gotten. That still could go wrong. Uh, as of this recording, the deal is not done. Um, but as I said, there were some people in the administration who seemed very encouraged by this, and it may work out. Um, it's just one more point worth noting, though, is that the president, boy, when he's when he's ready to announce new tariffs, he usually goes on a tear, and you get a whole bunch of tweets about this. Uh, occasionally the negotiators on the president's behalf end up reaching a deal. And then it seems to me you get one or two cursory check the box style uh, uh, tweets, you know, yes, I'm happy we had this. So I think the suspicion is the president just really likes tariffs. We have the infamous comment that trade wars are uh, simple and easy to win. And that, uh, you know, that my suspicion is this is the president who still has deep rooted protectionist instincts and your odds of having someone, the, 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 the trend of him using tariffs as an all-purpose foreign policy tool, uh, I think, is eventually going to come back to bite him. Uh, this is only going to, you know, enhance the likelihood of counter tariffs and turn into a tool for everybody else to use when they when America does something that they don't like. So, we'll see how things shake out. But at least there is some indication of progress, and perhaps this can be averted. Uh, particularly at this, as we mentioned earlier in the week, this rather delicate time when we're trying to get the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement through Congress as well as Parliament of the other countries. 
Jim, I'm happy to report now that we have uh, fixed our technical difficulties. I'm sure most of our listeners can figure out you were on the phone for that first martini. But we have now reestablished our regular connection and are moving on to the bad martini. And for listeners who are with us on Thursday, this one will sound really familiar. Because it's Joe Biden again on the very same issue of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, If you weren't with us yesterday, here's the story of Joe Biden over the past month, as well as the past 40-plus years ever since abortion's been legal in this country. Uh, Back in the 1970s, uh, after the Roe v. Wade decision, a congressman named Henry Hyde uh, from Illinois, who later became chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, led the Clinton impeachment process and that sort of thing, uh, put together uh, legislation, which became known as the Hyde Amendment, which barred taxpayer dollars from being used to fund abortions. And uh, even pro-choice Democrats for years and years and years agreed the taxpayer dollars should not be used to fund abortions. Joe Biden, as recently as not only the 2008 campaign, but literally yesterday, uh, supported the Hyde Amendment. But it's been an interesting month for Joe Biden because last month he was accosted by an ACLU activist named Nina. We played this yesterday, and she asked him about the Hyde Amendment, and he seemed to be on her side. Will you commit to abolishing the Hyde Amendment, which hurts poor women and and women of color? Yes, and by the way... ACLU member, I got a near perfect voting record my entire career. I heard you did, but I'm glad you just said you would commit to abolishing the Hyde Amendment. Right now, it it has to be, it can't stay. And then his uh, campaign on June 5th said, oh, Joe Biden misheard her. He thought she was talking about the Mexico City policy. Uh, He is opposed to the Trump position on that, but he has not changed his position on the Hyde Amendment. Well, the whole Democratic left, the presidential candidates, the abortion activists blew a fuse and uh, absolutely condemned Joe Biden for that. So yesterday's at a pro-choice event in Atlanta and flips again. But we now see so many Republican governors denying health care to millions of the most poorest and most vulnerable Americans by refusing even Medicaid expansion. I can't justify leaving millions of women without access to the care they need and the ability to to exercise their constitutionally protected right. If I believe health care is a right as I do, I can no longer support an amendment that makes that right dependent on someone. So, Jim, it took 24 hours of pressure for Joe Biden to abandon a position he's had for over 40 years. So... This is disappointing uh, for those of us who wanted to think of Joe Biden as being, you know, one step removed from the extremes of the Democratic Party on abortion, that this was one area where he was not drifting in this direction, that he at least kept that line that you as a taxpayer should not be uh, forced to pay for abortions when they, you know, morally offend you. Now we have a situation in which he was like, and yesterday our conversation was, relax, everyone. It's not that he was flip-flopping. He just can't hear what the question is and or he, you know, someone says Hyde Amendment and he hears Mexico City policy. And we were doing those jokes yesterday. We were just ahead of the curve because actually, no, he was flip-flopping. He, he's, you know. Now, Greg, here's kind of probably the most really interesting angle of all this. I wrote a little bit about this in the jolt today. You know, this, is this the move of a guy who's up by 20 points? Is this a guy who's who's the giant front runner and up against the rest of the field and felt super confident about his? This is kind of a weird, um, sudden shift. And, and the argument of the Trump team was that even if Biden gets the nomination, the process of the Democratic presidential primary was going to pull him far to the left of where his reputation and record had been. 
uh, and that the arguments you would make against Biden running for president wouldn't really be that different than the ones you do against Bernie Sanders running for president. That in the end, Biden was going to end up far out of step despite his, you know, oh, I'm middle class Joe and just this ordinary guy from Scranton and stuff like that. This is now a pretty vivid example of this. This was exhibit A for how Biden was not enslaved or, or marching in lockstep to the furthest left wing of the party. Um, it's kind of depressing if you're pro-life, although not exactly shocking and surprising. And I feel even a little more smug than usual uh, in the sense of my, my assessment that Joe Biden, he is a centrist within the Democratic Party, which is not to say he is a centrist in the full spectrum of American politics. Wherever the center of the Democratic Party is, that's where Biden goes or is shifting to. You see it on the crime issue. You see it on gun control. You see it on all kinds of issues. And I think, you know, the Democratic Party is going further to the left. Joe Biden will go further to the left. He may not go all the way, but he's generally not going to be far out of step with his party. So I don't think, you know, you know if you're disgruntled with Trump and Lord knows I understand where that's coming from uh, and your attitude is, well, look, maybe a President Biden wouldn't be so bad. Maybe President Biden would uh, prevent the Democratic Party from going too, too far to the left and, and going excessively uh, heavy handed in government, things like that. I don't think you can count on that. I think in the end, Joe Biden is a Democrat who wants to be liked by other Democrats, and he will eventually adjust and tailor his positions to get along with other Democrats. And that's I think this is a, a vivid example of this. And we're probably going to see this process repeated over and over again through the Democratic primary process. No, I think that's right, because the party's moving farther left and faster than Joe Biden either realizes or can keep up with. So the entire primary process, at least, is going to be, oh, we're over there now? Okay. And it reminds me of a quote from the fantastic political philosopher Jim Garrity, who uh, once said, these are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. Somebody else may have said that. I thought you were going to go with all statements from Barack Obama come with an expiration date, all of them. Funny how many political figures that applies to. Um, but I, I think Biden will go wherever he needs to go to get what he wants, which is the default setting for a whole bunch of Democrats. So uh, a whole bunch of politicians, in fact. So, you know, buyer beware when it comes to this primary process. Well, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And President Trump is stepping down. No, not that President yeah. Trump. Uh, Saturday Night Live is in hiatus over the summer. I'm pretty sure they've had their season finale. As you, as you can tell, I watch it faithfully. But uh, Alec Baldwin, of course, has gotten a lot of attention for portraying President Trump in the skits, gotten a lot of criticism from the right because they're more policy and uh, political oriented than humorous sometimes. But he's told USA Today he's stepping down, says, quote, I can't imagine I would do it again. I just can't. They should find someone who wants to do it. They're all my dear friends, and I love going there. But the other thing is is that I'm going to work this fall in a way that I haven't done for a while. According to the Today Show uh, and USA Today, Baldwin has his eyes on spending more time with his family. Quote, my wife and I had a son a year ago, and since he was born, I've worked minimally because I wanted to be there for my wife and kids. But the party's over this fall, and I'll be traveling. He said, SNL just crushes my weekends, and now weekends are going to become much more precious to me because that's time with my kids, which uh, in that case, if he actually wants to spend time with his kids, Jim, that's fantastic, as long as the kids don't park where he wants to park. Or, or he never calls them a filthy little pig on the phone <laughs> or other, you know, look, we, a lot of us have been parents, a lot of us have been mad. We, I'm not saying we haven't wanted to, to say nasty things or been really angry, Mr. Baldwin, but yeah, you know, generally we try to refrain from letting the full temper out, but... I interrupted, Greg. You were about to say. Yeah, I was about to say it's uh, interesting that he's stepping down with language we usually see from congressmen who are either caught with uh, women who aren't their wives or uh, with their hand in the cookie jar somewhere. Or both. 
uh, sometimes <laughs> simultaneously in really corrupt examples. Yeah, you know, it, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm stepping down from this role on Saturday Night Live. By the way, it's worth noting, it's not like Baldwin was doing a lot of other parts. It's not like he's a regular cast member. I guess he's kind of a special guest star who appears, if not every week, then, then a whole bunch of weeks. Some people are probably going to say, hey, why didn't you make this the good martini? Um, because, <laughs> first of all, I mean, you and I, we, we pick on Alec Baldwin. We don't like his politics. I think Team America offered perhaps the definitive portrait of him. But he gave us Hunt for Red October. That's not to say that Alec Baldwin has always been a bad actor or always been a guy we've disliked. Um, but his impersonation of Trump is basically... You can just see the utter disdain and loathing that Baldwin has for Trump coming out through this. And the whole thing is nasty and the whole thing is designed to get laugh applause. And it just is this, there's almost like a primal rage to every one of Saturday Night Live's sketches about Trump these days. And it doesn't strike me as particularly funny or honestly even all that enjoyable to watch. And I should not be a tough target audience when it comes to mockery of Donald Trump. Now, obviously, you can go back and you can look and think of, uh, I think probably you know one of the all-time classics will be Dana Carvey imitating George H.W. Bush. I think you could say uh, Phil Hartman doing Bill Clinton. People had strong disagreements about Will Ferrell and his impression of Bush. But I, th- I think it's safe to say that Will Ferrell, in addition to dis- not only disagreeing with Bush's policies, has no particular fondness towards George W. Bush, which was not the case between uh, Carvey and George H.W. Bush. People probably remember Dana Carvey was invited to the White House to do it. You know, what it, some of this is on the part of the politician, but some of this also is on the part of the person doing the impression and kind of the tone and style of that impression. I think the first thing is that, um, is that there's nothing inherently funny about it. Whereas, you know, I, I remember uh, the first times Carby did Bush, he went through his talking points, thousand points of light, prudent, not going to do it, you know, all kind of stuff. And I want to say it was Jan Hooks playing Diane Sawyer said, Mr. Vice President, you still have 45 seconds left in your answer. So Bush, George H.W. Bush does it again, indicating he doesn't have much more to say beyond his talking points. He goes, well, now we're down to 31 seconds, Mr. Vice President. So if you have anything more to say, I always feel like Trump, if you wanted to do a funny sketch, a version of the Reagan mastermind sketch, where the idea that like behind closed doors, Trump, instead of being this bold, boisterous, you know, super confident guy, was like, oh, my God, this has gone way out of control. This was just a stunt to get myself a TV network. I just wanted more Fox News time. I never wanted to win the presidency. What am I going to do? You know, that would be funny. right? When you, when you have a particular image of a president and then you contrary, you, you do some sort of thing that is the opposite of it, that kind of you know, there's a all of comedy is based upon some sort of incongruence, something that is not the way it's supposed to be. All the, you know, man walks into a bar, a priest and a rabbi, all, all humor kind of stems from some sort of contradiction there. And I hate this guy is not really inherently funny. So anyway, so I hope Saturday Night Live changes its approach. I hope uh, if Alec Baldwin really is spending time with his family, wonderful. I hope he gets it to have wonderful time with his family. And um, as you said, Greg, I hope nobody uh, takes his parking space. Although you probably could build a funny, <laughs> a funny joke, a sketch about that one. You take a sparking space, somebody's frustrated you took it, and all of a sudden Alec Baldwin gets out of the car. Oh, goodness. Here we go. <laughs> well, he also said in the uh, USA Today piece that he thinks Daryl Hammond, who's still the announcer on Saturday Night Live and also uh, portrayed Bill Clinton and many, many other people over the years, uh, would be a great successor to him, says uh, freely that he thinks Hammond is a better impressionist, which obviously he is. And Jim, when it comes to Daryl Hammond, he has done many different uh, roles with, with great skill over the years. But my favorite 
favorite Daryl Hammond moment ever was the skit uh, the Saturday after Clinton was acquitted in the impeachment scandal. He just walks <laughs> out to the microphone and all he says is, I am bulletproof. <laughs> that's that's up there. I mean, Hartman, I had thought, was the definitive Bill Clinton. <laughs> Listen, fellas, there'll be a whole bunch of stuff we're not going to tell Mrs. Clinton about. Um <laughs> The other thing worth noting is when people, you know, certainly for myself, when people imitate Bill Clinton, when people imitate these figures, very often they're not actually imitating the actual political figure. They're imitating the comedian on Saturday Night Live who most, uh, who did him the most. And maybe Daryl Hammond was the best. Start up there with the bulletproof will, will probably never be forgotten. I, you know, here's the thing. What is the one word that I think is associated with uh, Al Gore more than anything else in the whole wide world? Lockbox. See? Yes. We know it's you. Know, these are indelible. They will never go away. So uh, hopefully, again, there's still this sneaking suspicion. You know, we're, we're waiting for somebody to do the definitive Trump. And uh, you know, maybe, maybe Daryl Hammond's the guy. He did it back when Trump was just a standard, uh, you know, standard offering uh, celebrity. Uh, Hammond did him pretty good. Hammond did it with a, with a, um, in an Oreo commercial, double stuff, where he and the, and the Manning brothers. Uh, <laughs> the idea was that you know, the only teammate that Donald Trump trusted was basically a clone of himself. There's humor right there. Good luck, Sarah, live. And farewell, Alec Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. See you later. Uh, all right, Jim, have a good weekend. And uh, good luck with the pre-sales as we keep going here with uh, Between Two Scorpions. And we'll talk to you again on Monday. Listeners, thank you. Uh, it's, it's really, first of all, Greg, thank you for all the support. Listeners can't see the gun that I have to your head every time <laughs> you're forced to mention it every single episode. But he's such a good sport. And, uh, yeah, my hope is that after one more solid week of, of nagging readers, readers and listeners uh i can go back to being myself or or maybe they'll say no jim you gotta keep doing this keep you know you're basically i am my own publicity department so um it's either this and blackmailing greg and everything else so thank you everyone who's already bought for everyone else look it's not going to stop so you better get it out of the way now (laughs) jim garrity of national review i'm greg Columbus of radio america thanks for being with us today have a great weekend and tune in on monday for the next three martini lunch